Barbara Bradley Haggerty caught the stomach flu one day. It was no ordinary bug. It was a bug so bad that it set off a short-term health conundrum and a long-term spiritual crisis. Bradley Haggerty was a Christian scientist, and the religion forbids medications. But she felt so awful that she took her first Tylenol ever. I practically crawled to the medicine cabinet and pulled myself up by the sink, took one Tylenol, not two, just one, kind of crawled back to bed, and I lay there. And about five minutes later, I'm thinking, wow, I feel pretty good. Even after Haggerty beat back the stomach flu, there was a bigger issue that no meds could solve, and it had to do not with her body, but with her soul. So she went on a quest, and the answers she found were surprising, even shocking. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. I'm joined today by Barbara Bradley Haggerty. She's an award-winning former journalist for the Christian Science Monitor and National Public Radio. Haggerty currently is a contributing writer to the Atlantic Monthly, and she's the author of Fingerprints of God, what science is learning about the brain and spiritual experience. Barb, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So there you were, you were 34 years old in a hotel in New Haven, Connecticut, never having taken a pill of any kind as a Christian scientist, and you had the stomach flu. I sure did. It was a three days of just being so, so sick. And I remember coming home from, um, I think from exams at Yale, I was I was out on a fellowship there uh, Every year, Yale invites five journalists to go through their first year of law school. So I was doing this fellowship. I got incredibly sick. I remember going into bed and putting every piece of clothing, blanket, everything I had on top of me because I was so I was so sick. I was shivering. I was shaking. And suddenly, I remembered that my boyfriend at the time, who lived in Washington, had left a bottle of Tylenol in the medicine cabinet. And I just lay there in this kind of flashing in my head went off, Tylenol, Tylenol, <laughs> Tylenol. So I, I got out of bed and I, I practically crawled to the medicine cabinet and pulled myself up by the sink, took one Tylenol, not two, just one, kind of crawled back to bed. And I lay there. And about five minutes later, I'm thinking, wow, I feel pretty good. <laughs> I'm not, I'm getting kind of warm. These Let me get all these covers off of me. I'm hot, hot. And about 15 minutes later, I'm sitting there. I'm, I'm at the stove. I'm making some tomato soup, and I feel terrific. Now, that was the beginning of the end for, for Christian science for me. <laughs> and I kind of made a philosophical shift right then. I didn't quite leave Christian science because my mom and dad were still Christian scientists, and my brother had left, and he you know, said, you can't leave Christian science till mom and dad die. So, you know, I kind of felt obligated. But philosophically, I thought, oh my gosh, medicine's great. Christian science really relies only on prayer and says that medicine essentially doesn't work. I have to rethink this, but I also have to rethink what do I actually believe? What, what are the spiritual truths that I can, I want to, you know, put my flag on? And I remember, I remember the, uh, a couple of days later, I saw my friend Laura, who was also a journalist on the same fellowship, and uh, I told her that I'd taken a Tylenol and felt terrific, and she grabs my hand and squeezes it, and she says, oh, Barb, the whole world of pharmacology is now open to you. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> but it wasn't just the whole world of pharmacology. It was literally the whole world of 
religion and spirituality right. had suddenly come open because you were confronted with this dichotomy of moving from right. Christian science to Christianity. Right. That's exactly right. And, you know, that that shift came a little bit later when um, the, the, the journey began then, but I didn't begin to f- find some answers for another year and a half or so. And that was when I was assigned an article by the LA Times Sunday Magazine um, to do a story on why some churches grow and why others don't. And so I went out to LA and I profiled a few churches. One of them was Saddleback, Rick Warren's church. He had never done a national interview before, never done a major interview. So I was the first one to interview him. And I remember, you know, going to Saddleback and looking like at these tens of thousands of people who are going to this church, right? My church, Christian science churches are rather small. And so here these people are flooding in and I want to talk to people about their spiritual journey. And I um, sit through the service and it was fine. But afterwards I was talking to a woman named Kathy Young and she had had melanoma and it had um, gone into remission. And she was just talking about her spiritual journey and how it kind of intersected with her health journey. We were sitting outside. It was dark by this point. We were sitting on a bench underneath um, a light. And so it was almost like we were actors on a stage, right? And she's talking about our spiritual journey. And suddenly kind of I felt something. It was like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And my heart started beating a little faster. And it was as if there was like the air grew warm and moist as if like someone was breathing on us. It was like there was a presence right there with us. And it wasn't just me. Uh, It was this visceral feeling, but it wasn't just my own because Kathy stopped talking mid-sentence. And we just sat there for like 30 or 40 seconds. It felt like an eternity, but we just sat there in this presence and then it just receded. And... I looked at Kathy. I was, I was so spooked. <laughs> I said, well, Kathy, it's been so nice meeting you. <laughs> you don't need to finish that sentence. I'm just going to get out of here. And so I drove, I, I remember as I was driving away from, um, from Saddleback to my hotel in LA, I thought, oh my gosh, what the heck just happened there? You know, what, what was that? Was that a delusion? Was that the firings in my temporal lobe was like, what am I kind of, am I crazy? Or, or is it possible that there is a, a presence, you know, you call them God or whatever you want, but is, is it possible there's a presence that can actually step in the circle of light and breathe on you that can actually have a physical as well as a kind of psychological effect on you. And that was a very, very profound experience that started me really, really started me looking for real answers. And But going back many years before that, even, you'd had a lot of questions about stories your friends had told you, mm-hmm. stories you'd read about, even experiences your mother had. Right. What were some of those things that had started to raise those questions in your mind? Well, as a Christian scientist, um, I had seen with my mother, and I had experienced myself, spiritual healing. Um, now we would call it something else. We would call it the mind-body connection, um, that how you think actually affects your body, and we know this to be true. But for me, it was a, it was very profound. I saw these healings. Um, it made me really believe that there was more than this, that we aren't just wholly human physical beings made up of, you know, cells and 
and uh, brain firings and all of that. We, that's not who our identity is. And so I really, I really saw the evidence of God, I thought. The problem with my theology was that it seemed to be hit or miss. Like, if you, what if you prayed and you didn't get better? What about your mom and her hand, for instance? Oh, that was a great experience. So mom, you know, when she was a young woman, um, she was uh, she was a Christian scientist and she was talking to my dad and he said something funny and she slapped her hand, her hand on his knee and she actually, you know, felt a lot of pain. And he forced her, he wasn't a Christian scientist, he forced her to go to the doctor and have it checked out. And this was about three years, three days later. She, In the meantime, she'd been praying about it and um, she you know, finally went to the doctor. He did an x-ray and he goes, yeah, you know what? Um, there's a bone in your hand broken, but it's set perfectly. There's no way. All I could do is break it again and reset it. I'm not going to do that. Somehow it's set perfectly. So this was kind of one of these experiences. Mom had many of them where, where she just saw physical healings. And, and I saw it as well. And I felt the presence of God on many occasions. Uh, the problem for me was that if sometimes it didn't work, sometimes the prayer didn't work. And did that mean that I was flawed in my thinking? It all came back to, you know, was I, was I wrong or was I praying badly or was I um, not worthy of healing? What was going on with that? And so it made, it made it feel a little bit kind of random at times. And what I was, what I really wanted was a sense of Definitive. Not only definitive, I wanted a theology that actually accepted the world the way it was, right? Because in Christian science, there's this thinking that um, this world of humanness is kind of, it's a mirage. And what's really true is the spiritual world. That's hard to, you know, to say that this table, this table isn't real. That's a hard one to swallow, right? So I wanted a theology that would take into account the fact that we're human beings, that we're material, that the that we're flawed, the bad stuff happens, that cancer fells really, really good people, that we go to war, that people are bad, right? I wanted a theology that would take into account the good and the bad and the ugly. And I didn't have that as much with Christian science. And so when I began my search, I was really looking almost for a narrative, and and that's what I found with Christianity. People find it in all sorts of ways. I'm not I'm not an evangelist here. Um, all I'm saying is that I found it in the narrative of Christianity because being a storyteller myself, when I started to read, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there was a story there, and it made sense to me, and it contradicted with the theology, contradicted the theology of Christian Science. So. So basically, I, I ended up with Christianity partly because the story made sense. But for a long time, you were worried about pursuing those answers. You know, I know you and we've worked together and we are both hard-bitten journalists and you had some concerns about going down this path. What were those concerns? Yeah, I had, I had concerns, two types of concerns. You know, when I began thinking about these questions that I wanted to answer, is there more than this, that kind of thing? Um, there are two concerns. One is, if I explore these questions and look at, say, the science of spirituality, look at look at the evidence for God or whatever, would I find out that God is just a sham? <laughs> that I've organized my my life around this false notion that there's more than this. That was one set of kind of risks that I was taking. The other set was, you know, would I be 
I mean, what do my would my f- other friends <laughs> at NPR think of me if they knew that I was like this, you know, strong believer and you know believed in more than this that there's an afterlife that there we have a soul that there's you know that that religion makes sense. What would people think of me? And because you know, I think journalists are so skeptical and and. I mean, just in the way we report religion, it's kind of as anthropologists, aren't these funny little people who have all these funny little beliefs? Aren't they interesting? Well, now I was one of these people well, who had all these even. funny, <laughs> right, or kooky. So what would people think if they knew that I actually had this set of beliefs? And I kept it really quiet. In fact, I told you about it because we were friends, but I really didn't tell anyone about it. And people kind of, I think, found out when I wrote my book um, maybe when I was a religion reporter, they kind of found out. But at any rate, I didn't really want this to be well known, <laughs> well known among my circle of journalist friends. So what happened that then put you on this path? You you had another experience. I think it was like 10 years later. Right, right. It was 10 years later. So I um, I had all these questions that have been marinating, marinating over the years. Like, is there a God? Is there more than this? Do we have souls? You know, um, should I bank on this? Because it, it changes the way you think, right? If you're, if it changes your time horizons, are you doing things for eternity or just for this, you know, kind of the span of 70 or 80 or 90 years? And so I had all these questions and um, I put them aside because I was at NPR and I loved NPR. I was in awe of people like Chitra Raghavan. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> and, and no, I just I just so loved um, being at NPR. And so I kind of put these questions aside. But then um, in 2004, so this is about nine years after that experience with Katha Young, I um, was at a conference in Wallard, Tennessee, which is kind of in the middle of the mountains. And after the conference ended one day, I put on my running shoes and my shorts and I went off into the mountains around five o'clock. I just wanted to do a quick, you know, three mile loop, but up the mountain and back or something like that. Well, you know, very quickly, it got dark, extremely quickly, like much more quickly than I thought. And I happened to um, lose my flashlight. It bounced out of my out of my sweatshirt. And so there I was on a mountain pitch black, not really able to see the path in front of me. Every time I tried to go down the mountain, I would, the, the path would peter out. Literally, I was it was pitch dark, and I was in the middle of a mountain in Wallard, Tennessee. And I was scared, <laughs> you know, but I just didn't know how to get off the mountain. And so at one point, literally about three hours into this, I see some lights off in the distance. And I think, hallelujah, you know? <laughs> be able to get off this mountain. So I just kind of made a beeline through the through the jungle toward uh, toward those lights, you know, clapping my hands and singing, um, whither shall I go from thy presence at the same time, you know, keeping the bears away and kind of invoking God saying, hey, I'm here, you know, let's get off this mountain. And you had no light. I had no light. No. And so I, except for those lights I saw in the distance. So I finally, I come down the mountain. I'm thinking I'm about to you know, meet my, the person who's going to drive me back to the hotel. And there in front of me is this swollen stream that um, is rushing down the mountain. It's about, about 40 feet wide. 
and uh, it's swollen with all the kind of the snow from the water that's melted um, from the snow from the winter time because it was early spring. And I remember kind of stepping into the stream, thinking, well, you know, I gotta go, go, gotta go across, and it basically almost takes me down the stream. And I had this image picture of, you know, three days later, this poor fisherman <laughs> finding my bloated body sla- slapping <laughs> softly against the bank, you know? <laughs> like, and so I stood there for a while and I thought, um, you know, I don't have a choice here. I've just got to go across the stream. So I did. I plunged. And I'm fully dressed. I plunged into the stream and managed to kind of tumble my way across and get onto the other side and ran up to the uh, door of the house where I'd seen the lights and knocked on the door. And this woman comes to me and she says, oh, honey, you're all wet. She opens the door. Oh, honey, you're all wet. And I just began to sob because, A, I was so relieved, but also, I'd felt kind of alive in a way I hadn't felt in years that that there was this challenge and I overcame it. And that stream, that mountain and that stream became a metaphor for me because in many ways I was kind of spiritually wandering around the mountain. And I knew I had to ask these questions that could either take away my belief in God or cement it. I knew I had to cross the stream and... I decided to do it. And so then I ended up writing my book. That's an incredible story. And so you started looking for people who could answer these questions and you found this incredible community. Tell me about the types of people you found. Yeah, I found people of every stripe. Uh, The thing about this book is it wasn't about religion. It was about spirituality, spiritual experience. And so what you find is that people have can be of all sorts of religions or none and have had these profound spiritual experiences, many of which are, you know, they're kind of similar. So I interviewed Buddhists, I interviewed, you know, Sufi mystics, I interviewed Catholics and Protestants, I interviewed, I I interviewed Jews, I interviewed Muslims. I mean, I interviewed all sorts of people. I interviewed people who had had near-death experiences. I interviewed people who came out of these experiences believing that God was quantum mechanics. (laughs) Um, Well, at one point you say in your book, is he an electrician? Is he a chemist? Right, right, exactly. So, So I interviewed all of these people, and what I found is that they had these similar spiritual experiences. And the metaphor that was given to me um, was that it's kind of like spokes in a wheel and that these religions or non-religions, these paths, represent different spokes, but they're all heading toward the same hub they or, or emanating from the same hub, that they all have at their center kind of this spiritual transcendent experience. And whatever you want to call it, you know, Islam or or Christianity or Judaism or whatever you want to call it, there is at the center a very similar spiritual experience. And, you know, one of the the studies I looked at really drove that home for me. There is a man named, um, a neurologist named uh, Andrew Newberg at the University of Pennsylvania. And he wrote a book called Why God Won't Go Away. And he, uh, what he would do is he'd put various people into the brain scan, into a brain scanner, and he would do a PET scan so he could see what was happening to their brain as they did various things. So he did this with Buddhist monks, Franciscan nuns, um, Sikhs. He did it with people of various religion, and he asked them when they got in the brain scanner, not all at once. <laughs> It'd be crowded <laughs> that would in be there. A sight. <laughs> 
um, he he asked them to kind of just do their prayer or meditation or whatever it was, just to kind of seek, go to that deep place where um, for the nuns, it was, you know, focusing on Jesus. For the monks, it might be this sense of kind of the ground of being, whatever it might be, go to that deep place. And then he watched what would happen to their brains. What was incredible is that he saw two things. One is their frontal lobes, the part of the brain that kind of handles concentration and focus, right? Those lit up, the monks and the nuns, different religions, both lit up. And the parietal lobes, the part of the brain that um, tells you where you end and the rest of the world begins, it, it orients you in time and space, right? That went dark. So the feeling people would have is the sense of unity with all things. It could be unity with the Holy Spirit. It could be the ground of being, the universe, but it's unity with all things and a sense of um, timelessness to a kind of a connection to eternity that, that this moment is all there is, right? So both the nuns and the monks, different religions, had the same kind of spiritual experience. It's like one took map, used MapQuest and the other used Google Maps and they went the same route and they got to the same place. So from the point of view of the brain, spiritual experience is spiritual experience. It isn't about religion. It's about the experience itself. And that was really enlightening for me. For one thing, you know, it made, it. I don't like exclusivity. That's one of the hard things about religion. And, um, and it made me, it made me just feel really comfortable with my discoveries because if I was glad that I didn't have to be exclusive, it got me in a lot of trouble with evangelicals, but, (laughs) but I was really glad that I could really see that spiritual experience is common among all of these different people. So, so one of the fascinating things that I thought was that just because you were Christian or Hindu or Buddhist didn't necessarily mean that the spiritual experience you felt had to do with that particular deity. Absolutely. In fact, it usually didn't. It, it, I mean, sometimes people would see Jesus, some Christians would see Jesus. Um, and that makes sense because that's kind of been in their memory banks, right? That's, and and when, the, when their brain is firing in a certain way, maybe that memory is what comes comes forward. But they would see light. They would see relatives. They would see I mean, they would see the kind of the beginning and the end of the universe. They would feel like they were being changed at a cellular level. It wasn't about a religion. It was about the other, right? It was about the other. It was about there was this force that was a universe, bigger than the universe, that they suddenly connected to, and they never had that connection before. And before we talk about some of the other sort of similarities you found in these experiences, I want to say that you were talking to all of these seekers, but there were also medical and academic seekers and scientific seekers. You found that whole other community of people. And I was fascinated. All of these fields that are emerging, neurotheology and these organizations. Talk a little bit about what you found. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's a risky thing um, to be a scientist who explores spiritual experience. It's hard to get funding and um, people kind of think you're crazy. But what I found is that there are in all sorts of areas, whether it's genetics or whether it's um, neurology, you mentioned neurotheology, that's a study of the brain and what happens in like Andrew Newberg, what happens when when you're experiencing God or the other. Um, There are people who looked, you know, at 
at brain chemistry. They looked at epilepsy, like people who were specialists in epilepsy were thinking about the fact that there is something called ecstatic seizures. And this is when people have visions and believe that they are seeing God and hearing hearing a choir of angels and and all of that. That these that they were studying these experiences through the brain, but they weren't the humble ones weren't discounting them. That's what that was. What was really interesting. I mean, it's really easy to have a kind of a materialist mindset and go, you know what? All these experiences, yeah, you just had an epileptic epileptic seizure. You know that was all in the brain. Some scientists believe that the brain is like a closed system, right? And then if you have this kind of spiritual experience, it's nothing more than the firings of the temporal temporal lobe. It's your, you know, it's serotonin. It's it's a chemical reaction, and that it's actually there's nothing more than that. But other scientists are a little bit more open minded, and what they say is, "Gosh, you know, this stuff is happening, but maybe this is what the brain does when it encounters something." outside of itself, encounters the other. One person gave me this um, this analogy, a doctor at um, Johns Hopkins. He said, you know, it's like um, eating a piece of apple pie. So when you eat a piece of apple pie, predictable brain activity happens. So as you are um, lifting the fork, the, the apple pie to your mouth, the part of the brain that mediates smell will light up. As you put it in your mouth, the part of the brain that mediates taste will light up. Maybe the part of the brain that mediates memory will also light up simply because you can't remember a time that you had this good a piece of apple pie except for back in 1972, you know, and you remember that moment. Just because there's predictable brain activity, does that mean that the apple pie doesn't exist? No. What people would say, what this doctor would say at Johns Hopkins is, no, What's happening is your brain is reflecting an encounter with the apple pie. You could say the same thing about God. When you have a spiritual experience, maybe your brain is reflecting an encounter with the other. You found, as you were talking to both the community of of, uh, people experiencing this and the people who are observing this, that there are certain commonalities, what you call fingerprints of God. What were some of the commonalities that drove across those experiences, including yours? Yeah. So there were, most everyone I talked to had this sense of light, that they were just bathed in light. I know that happened to me. Um, The sense that there was a physical presence with them and that they couldn't quite understand because no one was there in the room. They were just meditating, right? They were a young college student just meditating and suddenly he feels like there's something else there, that he's connected to something else there. The other thing um, that, that was absolutely true is people felt it was this experience was weirder and more real than their previous existence in their normal everyday life, that it was both out of this weird, out of this world strange and true, truer than what their eyes told them, what, you know, their nose smelled, you know, it was very, a very true experience. It was also something that was unchangeable. It was like, um, they went through a door and I felt this way too. You go through a a one-way door you can't go back. You don't want to go back, but it's like you are changed, that the way you look at the world is different. This happened to me. I, you know, after my experience, 
um, I was really much more contemplative. Uh, it was as if I had a kind of, I'd kind of fallen in love in a way. Uh, and I wanted to contemplate, you know, I wanted to pray. I wanted to read. I wanted to meditate. I wanted to take long walks, but it wasn't with my boyfriend. I wasn't married at the time. Um, it was, it was with this sense of a relationship with God, you know, this, it was with God and many, many people felt this way. They, they went, it's not that they were extroverted and became introverted, but they did become more contemplative and the things that really mattered, um, like, you know, dinner parties in Washington, D.C. and, you know, getting getting ahead and all of this stuff, it didn't matter as much. There was something that was more important. And I found that to be almost universal. People were almost changed at a cellular level. That was sort of on the positive side, but there was also kind of this, uh, I, I won't call it a negative reaction, but a difficult re- reaction that they, the change that they went through, which is that, and you called it God breaking and entering, it's not like they went through this experience and you went through this experience and came out of it going, wow, I'm so happy. Everything's all right. You know, live happily ever after. Really, this could actually break you in its own way. Yeah. It, and you found that with people like Sophie Burnham. For right. Instance. Sophie Burnham. She was, uh, Sophie Burnham is kind of exhibit A in a profound spiritual experience that really upends your life. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I met her, I thought, oh my gosh, when I heard her story, I thought, oh my gosh, please don't let this happen to me. <laughs> so Sophie Burnham was a journalist and she was married to a journalist and they were kind of in the journalism circuit. And uh, she got an assignment to do a story for Town and Country down in Peru. And she took a side trip to Machu Picchu. And while she was there on the um, mountain, um, she's with other people, other tourists, but she had the sense that she had to just get away, get away, get away. And she found a quiet place to be. And she had this profound, I mean, like the most, one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've ever heard. It was truly otherworldly, where she first felt this great darkness um, and despair. And then it just turned into light. And she felt as if, again, she was being changed at a cellular level, but she also said she, it was like she saw light all around her as if she was seeing the particles of God. And um, she just lay there for a long time, just absorbing, feeling like she was absorbing the beginning, alpha and omega, the beginning and the end of the universe. That's how she described it. And that, that suddenly she was just, she had a completely different perspective. Um, and so she's down there, she's lying there, you know, having this spiritual experience, and finally she's about to miss the bus. So I guess there was enough temporal <laughs> sense for her to look at her watch and go, oh, oh, I better get back to the bus. And she gets back to the bus. And this was a very, very profound experience. She comes back to Washington, and the way she described it, I love the metaphor, she said, everything was like ashes in my mouth, that this was so profound and so encompassing that she no longer really wanted to participate in the life she had before. And she ended up getting a divorce. Um, she became an author, but about, about spiritual things. Um, she ended up living a much more kind of quiet and solitary life. And um, I remember when I met her, I just thought, oh my goodness, please don't let this happen to me. <laughs> I had a spiritual experience. Thank goodness mine was not quite as earth-shaking as hers because I, I, I really, you know, while I do have a changed sensibility, kind of changed preferences for how I spend my time, um, I also wanted 
to be a normal person. And I wanted, you know, to be, I wanted to, I love my job at NPR. Um, I didn't want to leave it. You know, I remember Chitra when I was at NPR and I loved being there, but I also was kind of torn because I thought, gosh, if you have these kind of spiritual experiences, maybe, you know, maybe I'm really supposed to be in ministry. And you and I actually talked about this on the way to Starbucks. We went <laughs> we went to Starbucks a lot. And uh, maybe I'm supposed to be in ministry. And so I remember I was praying one day, sit right over there and um, thinking about this and thinking, well, you know, maybe I should be in ministry. And, and a couple of days later, this um, pastor from a megachurch offered me a job to start a Christian radio program. And I remember thinking, well, you know what, this must be my calling. Um, this is exactly what I should be doing, you know. God prepared me to, you know, know how to do radio, and now I can do Christian radio. I was a little weird about it, but whatever. This must be what I'm supposed to do because it's all dropped in my lap. And so I'm sitting there praying about this opportunity that's come to me. And as I was praying, I had this image of God, you know, sitting in his lazy boy, right, (laughs) kind of looking down, realizing what I was thinking and, you know, contemplating taking this other job. And I imagined him cupping his hands around his mouth going, no, (laughs) don't become a church lady. (laughs) And, and you know, look, I just, I let you be this journalist. I trained you, you know, I allowed you to get all these skills. Just be a really, really good journalist. Just, but, you know, approach it in a different way in the sense of um, have a servant's heart, you know, share your sources with people, invest in the younger journalists. Don't be jealous of them because they're smarter than you are, (laughs) you know, invest in them and just kind of take a different approach. But, be a journalist and be as good as you possibly can be. And so that was, um, so that way I got to stay in journalism and didn't have to become a church lady or, um, or take the path that Sophie Burnham took. I'm glad God spoke to you because that would have been, I think, a little wasted. <laughs> Although you'd have done a great job. But, um, you know, we talked about some of the fingerprints of God, the commonalities. But the one thing I think that was really also important was this idea of brokenness Mm -hmm. in people's lives, including yours. Tell me about your brokenness and then what you found in terms of it being a commonality. Right. Yes. uh, That is one of the, uh, one of the commonalities among all of these people that I talked to. Um, You know, there's a metaphor. uh, It's in the Bible. It's probably other places too. There's a metaphor that when you plant a seed, it's a hard shell, right? It's hard. Um, you plant a seed, and until that shell is broken, there's no life. And so brokenness is this notion that bad stuff happens that breaks you, but it's through that bad stuff, that brokenness, that you can actually come to a new life. So for me, it really happened um, It happened before in the middle of kind of researching my story for the L.A. Times Sunday Magazine back in 1995, I was at a really broken period. Externally, I looked fine, but I had finished my program at Yale. Um, I had not gone back to the Christian Science Monitor simply because I felt 
that would be a bit hypocritical. I was really straying away from Christian science. So I really didn't feel I should do that. I had a book contract, which I hadn't signed because the one useful thing I learned at Yale Law School is don't sign a contract <laughs> if you're not sure you can do it. So I had a book contract to write a biography of Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner in Burma. And I was uncomfortable with the book because honestly, the more I learned about her, the less I liked her. And I didn't want my first book to be this kind of tell-all book <laughs> about a Nobel Peace Prize winner who then was, you know, one of the greats in the in the she world. She could do no wrong. She could time. do no wrong um, back then. And so, um, so you know, I'd left my career. I was having, I was really having second thoughts about this book I was supposed to write. I was, um, I thought I was going to marry this guy that I knew I should not marry, but I was 35 and I wanted to get married. And I was also this marathon runner who had got injured. So like all these parts of my identity, these things that identify, that defined me, you know, my running, my relationship, my career, my religion, all of those things were kind of sawed off. And you couldn't tell this from the outside, but inside I was broken. And I think what that did is it made me open to looking, to surrendering a little bit, to saying, you know what, what I've done humanly hasn't, it's got led me here and this place kind of sucks. <laughs> I'm not really that happy right now. And so I need to kind of rethink this. And I think that sense of brokenness allowed me to have the kind of spiritual experience I did. Because if you're completely self-sufficient, then God can't break in and enter right? He can't rearrange the furniture um, and say, oh, you'll love it when it's done, when you're like, ah, you're rearranging my life. And I saw this over and over again with people who who were, you know, either sometimes it came in kind of real sicknesses or when they were just very sick or when they thought their daughter was, you know, uh, there were people who, I remember talking to a woman who her brokenness came when her daughter died, right? Um, and that created this brokenness. Or it was just when people felt like their lives were meandering and they didn't have direction. But what you found is that there was this hunger that people had and they didn't know how to fill it. And it was only when they had some kind of either physical or emotional um, or career cat catastrophe that they were open to saying, okay, you know, I don't know what to do. So let's just be open to kind of the universe. A lot of this stuff is fairly controversial. You know, there are a lot of scientists who are on the opposite side and they're like, everything can be explained through biological processes. And there are people who hit rock bottom and therefore, obviously, they go to seek something and they right. and then they read too much into it. And one of the questions you asked was, is there a predisposition to this? You know, is right. there a God gene? Right. What? Where do people right. fall on this stuff? Right. So um, I looked at a few things. Is there a God gene? Is there a God spot in the brain? Is there a God chemical? Um, does prayer heal or not? I looked at kind of the questions that mattered to me. Uh, in terms of like, is there a God gene? Um, actually, there isn't. They haven't figured out what it is yet. Some people are clearly predisposed to spiritual experience. My mother was spiritual and I'm spiritual. It seems to run in families. Um, they haven't discovered a God gene yet. Is there a God spot in the brain? Yeah. It's called the temporal lobe. People who have temporal lobe epilepsy have spiritual experiences. Some of them do. They're called ecstatic um, seizures. So I go up to Canada uh, and I meet with this guy, this neurologist named um, Michael Persinger, who believes that um, he can activate your right temporal lobe by putting this kind of God helmet on you. It's basically... <laughs> 
it's a, it's a motorcycle helmet with solenoids in it, and he puts these like electrodes on your brain, on your head, um, and then he um, he sits you down. He's so what he did is he sat me down in this really old crusty chair with an ottoman with a kind of an Indian saddle blanket on it, it and then he puts these um, electrodes on your head and then he puts his god helmet on you so the electrodes are kind of connected to the solenoids and then he takes takes these goggles and puts napkins in them so you can't look out and he puts these goggles on your head and then he leaves the room and the, what he's going to try to do is while you sit there in the dark wondering what the heck am I doing this chair smells um, what, he, what he's trying to do is to activate your right temporal lobe and create this sense presence. And what he did is, you know, I sat there for a half an hour and he was kind of activating this and that. And I'm, I'm having performance anxiety because I'm not having a spiritual experience. And, and, uh, and so the experiment ended and he said, you know, your brain was just working to, it was your EKG was too high. You know, your brain, you were too active, but you're almost there at a spiritual experience. I could tell you're almost there. And I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> um, but he, he had had this kind of, um, he had said that you could activate your right temporal lobe and have the spiritual experience, a sense of a presence. When I got back later and listened to the tape on my radio, because I'd put my microphone there in, in this in the control room where he was and listened to him and I could hear my own voice. What I realized is that I was narrating something of a weird, um, it wasn't a spiritual experience, but he would say, okay, now I'm going to activate your right temporal lobes right now. And da da da. And then a few seconds later, you'd hear me say, you know, I see these goblins to my, to my left and there's this kind of roiling darkness. And so when he would do something, I was getting these kind of images, but what it wasn't was a sense presence. It wasn't a spiritual experience. What he told, what it told me was that, yes, you can manipulate your brain to have these kind of odd experiences, but it's very, very different from having an experience with the other. But on the other hand, I want to briefly say that you also found that people who've had spiritual experiences could actually recreate them for scientists, which was fascinating. They could reach that state, see yeah. that light on on command. They could, they could. And it, this was especially true both with, you know, Buddhist monks who meditate and Franciscan nuns, but also people who've had near-death experiences and really went to this place where, they had, I mean, a lot of them had gone through this dark tunnel to the light and seen relatives and had this profound experience. And it was quite, I mean, it was quite common. And you could say, well, that's what the brain does when it's shutting down. But they came back very different. And what some of these people could do is they they felt that that experience was so profound that they would meditate and they were able to replicate it again and again and again. And I met some of these people. They were different as a result. They had a different... <laughs> They had a different view of what was important. I remember going to a near-death experience um, conference where there were like 200 people who had <laughs> near-death experiences at MD Anderson, and and you know they were they were all so peaceful, right? I'd say like, okay, I want to, I want, can we talk at two o'clock this afternoon? And you know they'd say, oh well, let's just see what the universe has to say. And I'm like, no, 
<laughs> I'll see you at two o'clock this afternoon. Well, if the universe says, or, you know, it's, it's like a really different way of thinking. But but they had these experiences. They sh- cherished them. It changed the way they looked at the world, and they could go back there again and again and again. Now. This obviously changed your world. And then in 2012, you kind of had another major crisis. And what you had, the journey you had been through, helped you get through this other crisis. Tell us briefly about the crisis and how you were able to manage it. So in 2012, um, I began to lose my voice. Now, I'm a radio reporter, so my voice is fairly important. But every time I would get a cold, and even when I wouldn't, I'd lose it for two or three or four weeks at a time. And that was really, really inconvenient. But what happened is in the spring of 2012, I began getting chronic pain in my in my vocal cords. And it became the kind of pain that was almost unbearable. It wasn't like I was going to commit suicide, but I would I thought, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can handle this pain for another year or two years. And you were doing a lot of meds. I was doing a lot of medicine, medication, which helped enormously. Once I got on the meds, the gabapentin and the amitriptyline, which are not which are not like opioids or anything, but they managed to help my vocal cords. Uh, that helped an awful lot with the chronic pain. But for a former Christian scientist, you were taking a record number of pills. I was taking 24 pills a day. <laughs> You've come a long way. You've come a long way, baby. Uh, Yes, I was taking 24 pills a day. They also made me kind of sleepy and kind of like I was always trying to run through water. You know, I was just, I felt groggy and I didn't like the feeling, but I didn't have the pain that I'd had before. So what I decided to do was get another book contract. um, And I frankly didn't care what, what contract it was, but I wanted a book contract so I could step away from NPR and the daily news, because what I noticed is the pain would just skyrocket when I was on deadline. So clearly it was related to stress. What would happen if I could step back from the stress pray, meditate, you know, and, and get away from that. And what would happen? What, what happened is that my pain levels went way down, but I also had this kind of a little bit of a crisis because being away from NPR made me realize that doing news was really hard on me. I've been doing really hard news. I mean, you and I both covered the Justice Department. I'd been doing hard news for all my career, but especially at NPR, 19 years. And it wasn't good for me. I just wasn't cut out to do news. And it was taking, someone had once said to me, a psychologist once said to me, you know, when you're not in the right job, um, one of two things will happen. Either you'll leave or your body will make you leave. What I realized is that my body was making me leave. But who was I if I wasn't NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty? So this was another identity crisis. I didn't want the pain. I wasn't sure I could go back to news. I wasn't sure I wanted to go back to news. But who was I? And so what happened is um, I had this kind of insight that I got from my book, Fingerprints of God, which was that I've been here before. I have been at a point where my identity, the things I define myself by, have been taken away. And while this is really crummy, I've been here and I know that I can get through it and that life will be better if I, if I get through it and surrender to it a little bit and be open. The other thing 
that I learned um, because I was doing a book on midlife and how to thrive at midlife. Um, what I learned is that I wasn't going to reinvent myself. You know, as I looked at this kind of career crisis, I knew I couldn't go back to news, but I wasn't going to become an organic farmer. You know, <laughs> I wasn't going to open a B and B in New Hampshire or right? a church lady <laughs> or a church lady. That's right. I left that one behind. Um, but what do you do, right? I'm not going to reinvent myself. What I realized, and I learned this in the course of writing my second book, is that um, by the time you hit your early 50s, which I was, you have enough biography behind you to know what you're good at and what you're not good at, what you like doing and what you love doing. And what I should do is kind of pivot on my strengths and what I'm really good at and, and emphasize that. So for me, it's long-form narrative, right? It's storytelling, it's podcasts, it's book writing, it's magazine writing. And what I ended up doing is just saying, okay, I'm going to take my strengths and I'm going to pivot onto those strengths. And so those two things, this notion that I've been here before and this notion that I don't have to reinvent myself, I can take what, I've already, what I'm already good at and proceed along that line, that really helped me get through this health crisis, but also the identity crisis. Looking back at the person you were in 1994, what would you say to that person about kind of this, this long journey you've undertaken and who you've become today? So back in 1994, I mean, I would say to that person, boy, you know what, you've got a little bit of a ride ahead of you. And some of it's going to be really unpleasant, you're going to be broken, you're going to have stuff stripped away from you, that you are will, will be really, really unhappy about. But you have to be broken to have life. You have to break that outer shell so that you can, the the green shoots can come up and that you can have life. So just hang on, just be open to what happens. Just put one foot in front of the other and, and um, embrace the brokenness. That's what I would say. Barb, it's been so great having you on the podcast and fascinating conversation. Thank you. Chitra, you are so much fun. I, I wish we could do this every week. Can you come back next week so we can laugh? Yeah. We'll talk about your other book and your other crisis. <laughs> My many crises. Thanks, Chitra. Barbara Bradley Haggerty is an award-winning journalist at the Christian Science Monitor and my former colleague at National Public Radio. She's a contributing writer at the Atlantic Monthly and the author of two books, Fingerprints of God and Life Reimagined, which I also highly recommend. This is When It Mattered, and I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thank you for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.